The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. Um, our show today, we're going to be talking about um, the criminal justice system and youth and family services, but also um, I think the bigger message for our show today is the fact that in many ways, we're, we're really kind of tossing away a whole generation of young people due to um, continued funding cuts over the last, I would say, 10 years. Um, funding cuts for addiction services um, have continued to dwindle. Um, we get a smaller piece of the behavioral health care pie. So as a result, when people get into trouble, they end up in the criminal justice system who who has gotten much more money to treat addiction than the behavioral health care system has had over the last 10 years. And this whole shift of, um, I guess, making, in some ways we're making addiction illegal, the disease of addiction illegal because we're not willing to treat it in the community but we want to put people away and treat them behind bars if they're lucky. And um, our guest today is going to be talking to us about an innovative program in Vermont and also kind of giving us a, a, a snapshot of, of what's going on today, at least in the Northeast. Um, I'm not sure that we can speak to the whole country, but we can certainly speak to what's happening in the Northeast. So I'd like to introduce our guest. Um, our guest today is... Annie Ramesseanu, I'm hoping I'm saying that right, but you can correct me, Annie, if I'm wrong, who is the Associate Executive Director of Clinical Programs at Spectrum Youth and Family Services in Burlington, Vermont. Annie has a host of um, credits to her name, but I think one of the things that you'd be or everybody would be really interested in is in 2012, she was awarded the Burlington BPW Woman of Achievement Award. She was also chosen as one of Vermont's 25 Most Outstanding Women by Vermont Works for Women Labor of Love. She's a graduate of Columbia University and completed a Master's in Science and Counseling at UVM. She's a licensed Vermont as a clinical mental health counselor and alcohol and drug counselor. Annie, thank you for taking time to be with us today. You are so welcome, Mary, and you took a good stab at my last name. Well, you know, um, I tried, but I'll, yeah. I'm going to work on it. <laughs> so uh, tell me a little bit about um, youth treatment and, and what's going on for youth and treatment and addiction um, in Vermont. Well, what we are seeing and have been seeing probably over the last decade is a decrease in admissions for adolescents presenting to what we might call the formal treatment provider system, so designated agencies um, who provide addiction services. And 
We've continued to see that drop, not only, I think, in part, as you mentioned earlier, due to shifts in funding or lack of funding, um, but in Vermont specifically, I think we are still struggling with how we not only identify problems with substance abuse early, we're still struggling also with how to educate families and other uh, professionals and individuals who really work with youth. And we are not doing a good enough job engaging them into services when those problems are first identified. So that is resulting in a somewhat scary trend, which you um, duly noted um, almost seems like we're throwing away a whole generation here. And uh, youth or rather younger, uh, older adults or younger adults rather, who are presenting for their first treatment episode more at the end of adolescence, 17, 18, and even older in their early 20s. And they have many more problem areas, and obviously their substance use problem is, is, is more chronic as well. Um, in Vermont, what are you seeing in terms of um, availability for treatment? I know in New Hampshire that that. Uh, the ability to treat adolescents has significantly decreased over the last few years. Well, the funding has has, made, has has really stayed as open as it was when I first entered the field about 15 years ago. Vermont has really tried to use its substance abuse block grant dollars um, for uh, a treatment system that's, that spans the, the, the geographic area of the state. Um, but I know that I am in a very uh, resource-rich area, Burlington, Vermont, which is the most densely populated part of the state. And in other parts of the state, I understand that they have long wait lists. Um, I have not uh, experienced that at Spectrum Youth and Family Services, and I think that's in part not only to being in a resource-rich area, but also um, directly related to one of the innovative practices that hopefully we'll be able to talk about today, um, which is the reducing wait time aim, which is part of the NIATEC's quality improvement process. Um, just to give our audience a little bit of uh, um, kind of overview, can you just explain typically when somebody does come in for treatment, what the age is, and why, why does it make a difference for people to come into treatment earlier rather than later? Sure. So the age that we're seeing, it's really a, a normative distribution curve. Um, I'd say the younger ages, 14 to 16, really have become only about 10, 15% of the youth we serve at Spectrum. In a typical year, uh, taking into account different staffing variances, we usually see about 375 youth and then as many of their family members as we possibly can encourage to come in. So that 10 or 15%, I mean, that's really not very much when you think about it. I'm talking about maybe 40 youth in that age range. And then it, the predominant group is this 17 to 22, um, really uh, with a more heavy emphasis on that a 20 to 22-year-old. That is the remaining, you know, 85%. Um, again, why this is so important that people come in earlier rather than later is that obviously more years of exposure and more habits, not only psychological habits, but neurological habits, um, intensify the substance abuse problem and uh, help continue to delay development uh, and coping skills and 
you end up with a young adult who is really struggling and not meeting the milestone expectations of their young adulthood. I think we often forget that um, the brain doesn't completely develop until I think it's age 25. Yeah, and they're even saying a little bit 26, and obviously yeah. so many individual variances in there too, but you're absolutely correct. Right. So this really is, you know, a neurological Russian roulette. Well, it is, and I think it's a lot of things people take for granted. I know, I certainly I hear it a lot, not so much here at Westbridge because we treat people 18 and over, but to a certain extent we hear it, where families say, well, they're going to drink anyway, and they might as well drink at our house, so at least we know what's going on. And it's it's just like, um, it's like it's no big deal. And even like smoking pot, we have people who smoke pot with their kids. And um, I don't, I really don't think people understand the significance of what um, just even social use can do to somebody's um, development. Yes, I obviously could not agree more with you, and I'm also, not that I'm happy about this, but I'm in one way glad to hear that Vermont is not the only state where parents report smoking pot with their children. Um, But that being said, you know, what people don't understand is that the gateway theory is alive and well, and what the gateway theory really says is that it is increases probability uh, in early use increases the probability that you are going to not only have a greater problem with that substance that you've been using at an early age, but it increases your likelihood that you may uh, engage in other risky behaviors such as other drug use. So um, I, I think that, uh, again, I couldn't agree, agree more with you. And I always say to, to parents who, you know, have that attitude as I try to shift their perspective and create some discrepancy in their thinking. I mean, how would it be if we gave your 12-year-old a pack of cigarettes and we taught them how to smoke cigarettes, but, you know, just one or two a day? Um, you know, it's, I often think that that's a, a, a good way to help them see that these substances, while they may be legal for adults in, in many states, uh, and certainly um, increasingly so, um, it still doesn't mean that it's healthy and good for us. And so how do you differentiate between a young person from, from like, experimenting and misuse to abuse to uh, dependence? Well, I mean, for many years, we've all certainly relied on the DSM-4, and I, and I understand that this section is, is, is heavily rewritten now in, in the upcoming DSM-5. I always go back to behavior and the, the notion that this typically begins as a habit. Certainly we know for people who really end up being uh, problem users, um, there's, there's most likely a genetic uh, component at play as well. Um, but when it starts occupying a large amount of that young person's time, either using it or recovering from it, they're starting to get in trouble for it, they're giving up things that they used to do, whether that was sports or the arts, different people they hung out with, all for a very substance use related lifestyle, those are all very big indicators that there is trouble brewing. And uh, we know that there are some effective treatments for adolescent substance abuse. Exactly. And that's the right. shame, and I, 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 I applauded the, I can't remember the name of the author, but there's been a series of articles in the New York Times recently. Uh, somebody wrote a book 
um, basically extolling all of the evidence-based practices that uh, we are hoping the public becomes more and more aware of. Um, instead of spending a lot of, uh, you know, well-intentioned dollars, emotions, and other family resources uh, towards uh, practices that are not shown to be effective. Um, how effective is prevention? I think prevention is extremely effective. And I think one of the hardest, uh, they have a hard cross to bear, though, because when prevention is effective, uh, usually you can't prove that it's effective because uh, you can't show that people aren't using when they would have been using. Um, that being said, prevention and healthy lifestyles are what keep us healthy across our entire lifespan. So reminding people all the time that the most basic building blocks of good lifestyle habits, whether it's intellectual pursuits, taking care of your body, um, getting good sleep, having a good diet, these are all foundational to uh, good health. Whether you use substances or not, that's great advice. And we'll be right back after this commercial talk with Annie some more. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Have you figured out what's not working in your life? Could you use a little help? Join your host, Tamaron, for Let's Figure It Out. Tamaron has had both highs and lows in her life. She uses her experiences to teach you some basic techniques on how to live a better life through health, relationships, and more. Her guests also come from the health and wellness industry, and together, Tamaron and her guests will help you get your life on the right path. Let's Figure It Out airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everybody, to One Hour at a Time. Our guest today is um, Annie, and I'm going to say this really fast, so hopefully I get it right. Did I say it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you go ahead, Annie. Go All ahead. right, this is Annie Ramnisiano with Mary Wood. Thank you. You're with, welcome. With so we're, we're, both, we're both the same. Um, <laughs> we're talking today about uh, adolescent substance abuse, and um, Annie is the executive Director of Clinical Programs at Spectrum Youth and Family Services in Burlington, Vermont, and um, they've done a lot of work in Burlington with adolescents. Um, they've done some research that Annie will talk about um, later on in our hour, and um, our last segment, we just kind of set like the, the tone, if you will, for a little bit about adolescent substance um, abuse and misuse and dependence, and, um, and in this segment, we'd like to talk with you all about um, some of the challenges of working with adolescents in treatment and what we know to be effective treatments. So, Annie, do you want to start with challenges or effective treatments? Oh, let's get the challenges done with. <laughs> I think okay. they'll be familiar to most people who, um, uh, you know, have worked with this age group. Um, you know, I think what's probably most challenging um, However, not to all practitioners, uh, I don't necessarily particularly find it challenging, um, is just that um, you have to really, really like teenagers. And I think this is a population um, developmentally uh, where there's still tremendous potential, obviously, and a tremendous curiosity about, about life. And part of that curiosity plays out as risk-taking. Um, I think sometimes that can be very frustrating to adults um, because we always think, you know, why don't they know better? Why can't they just stop this? And I think sometimes we don't remember um, what, we, what it was like for us, and I think we also don't appreciate how the world has changed. Uh, I think, um, I know I'm sure every generation says this, but the, the technology has changed our environments and the world we live in so rapidly over the last even 10 years um, that I, I think it really it does make my head spin. And I think for teenagers, how that uh, has increased the challenges of, of, of drug and alcohol treatment is that the ease in which kids can communicate and um, the, that rapid communication um, does not uh, help with impulsivity, kind of amplifies their impulsivity and risk-taking, uh, I think those in particular, those factors in particular, make it extremely challenging for youth to control themselves, slow down, and really think about what they're doing. Um, you can literally just text your friend to, you know, give you an oxy in between classes in the hallway um, and really not even think twice about it. It's out there. The message is out there. Um, I think this has also created a lot of challenges for families and for parents at home of what limits they set on the structure of the family life. All those rhythms that we used to have of family dinner, uh, tel- uh, television only after homework, 
I mean, now homework is done on the computer, and how do you know what your kid is doing on the computer unless you're standing over them 24-7? I mean, all of these things have just made um, treating something that's a, a disorder, a disorder that really is also impulse-based, you know, very complex. Well said. I think the, the biggest key to what you just said is you really have to like working with adolescents. And, and I always I, I always say that um, for people who want to work with folks that have co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse, you really need to like the people you're working with or find the people you do. <laughs> Yeah, because no, if you absolutely. Don't like who you're working with. Doesn't matter what you're doing, you're not going to get good outcomes. No, and that's completely correct. They, you will not, and, and there have been many studies done on this. Um, you can be the best trained clinician and, and the best trained clinician in evidence-based practices, but if you really do not like who you're working with and are not able to really show that genuine empathy, which is really a curiosity from us to them about them your outcomes will be much poorer than the other clinician who has that added value to their work. Um, So what do we know that are effective treatments for adolescents? Because for years, most of the research was done on adult white males, and we patterned all of our treatment for women, adolescents, people of color, all around that research. So what do we know now? Well, what we know now, and all of this uh, research and work probably started about 10 years ago, um, funded primarily by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse um, Mental Health Services Administration, and CSAT, the Center for Substance Abuse Treatment, resulted in a portfolio called the Cannabis Youth Treatment Series, of which I am a tremendous fan. Um, My agency was fortunate enough to participate in one of those first SAMHSA grants when they were validating these protocols that are part of that portfolio across the nation. And we were exposed to um, what does not, it's not a very sexy name, it's METCBT5, which stands for Motivational Enhancement Therapy, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, um, was developed by Susan Sample at the University of Connecticut. Um, it combines motivational interviewing, essentially, with CBT, uh, a skill-based approach. And we have found that to be extremely effective with young people, uh, especially since we are an outpatient, outpatient office-based setting uh, that we're also able to combine case management, a limited amount of case management due to our funding streams. Um, but C- METCBT5, and the, there are other modules that uh, allow you to extend to 12 sessions, um, paired with urine analysis, we have found to be as efficacious as Susan Sample's research study was. So that is the core of what we do at Spectrum Youth and Family Services today, along with parent, um, a parent component. How do you determine that to be effective? What are your outcome measures? We uh, collect the NOM-SOMS, the National Out- the Outcome Measurement System, um, SAMHSA, um, I guess they're just outcome datas, um, data set. Um, and part of that uh, reporting that we do on a monthly basis, uh, we do send in um, all the results of our urinalysis, um, not the specific numbers um, that might be appearing in a urine screen, but whether or not there was a reduction in use or an increase in use or abstinence. So we're able to see um, a a chart monthly and then over a 12-month fiscal period of our outcomes uh, against all the other providers in Vermont and then also against a national data set. 
So it's basically the outcome is based on urine testing as opposed to functional. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yes, we, we, there, we urine test. Yeah. So is there a correlation between what you're finding in urine testing and people's level of functioning? Um, tell me what you mean. Well, um, are kids staying in school? Are they... Oh, I see. Yes, is there a behavioral component improvement? Absolutely. Um, We see increases in, we also just finished a three-year recovery-oriented system of care grant that was funded by SAMHSA, in which this was also our approach, and we saw statistically significant increases in um, school attendance, school completion, and also uh, job vocational readiness, as well as holding a job. And how do you do you see kids like maybe every couple of years? Do you see kids relapsing after a period of time? Um, what do you typically see over the course of for like a high school experience for somebody? Mm-hmm. I think what we see very very closely matches uh, Michael Dennis's research at Chestnut Health Systems, which basically uh, shows that um, sort of the rule of the thirds. Um, a third of the youth receiving the best evidence-based practice, um, one episode is sufficient, and they can maintain uh, recovery and abstinence for up to even 12 months. And then the next third, you know, you're going to see go back uh, to intermittent use, and then the remaining third of the youth receiving even evidence-based practice you know, obviously are, are more of what we might call non-responders and are going to struggle more mightily with this and relapse more readily. So, you know, what we see across those groups, that normative curve, you know, is very reflective um, of their attendance in, in counseling. Um, we encourage what we call recovery management checkups in which people call in and, and we also call them to see how they're doing. Do they need another dose? Um, a little, a little intervention, a little prevention. Are they? How are they doing? Um, and that works more effectively for the healthier youth who have that insight and ability to kind of catch themselves, um, and they self-select to come back in. For youth who are in the non-responder group, um, it's typically more difficult, and even with that prompting, they're not as likely to re-engage. Although some do. Um, and unfortunately, what happens at that point is that they typically pick up another charge or get uh, get caught by somebody, and they show up again through that kind of coercion. So do most, do most of the kids in this program, are they voluntarily coming, or are they coming as a result of a consequence? Most kids come as a, as a result of a consequence, absolutely. I think um, that's, again, another, another issue I think the substance abuse field has to deal with, not only with this age group, but in all age groups, is that that is primarily the way people come into treatment. Somebody is forcing them to do so. Um, now, one sort of myth is that forced treatment isn't effective, and I can only reassure people that that is absolutely not true, and actually coerced treatment is very effective. And when you back off and give people enough space and time to understand their situation and to uh, gain a perspective, um, they also can increase their readiness uh, to engage in treatment and improve their health outcomes. But they don't, I guess most I, of them just don't yeah. walk in off the street and say, I've got a problem. 
Right, right. I, I think I want to qualify that coerced treatment works when you use effective treatment. True. <laughs> you know, <laughs> very I, true. Because a lot of people think, well, we'll just force them into treatment, any treatment, and yes. um, that's not always the best either. You know, and I'm so evidence based that sometimes I just eliminate that from my language because I'm in that bubble. Um, but right. it's just like uh, I know I was. I often tend to be very frustrated. Uh, hopefully, not so much a current practice, but certainly was ten years ago when, if you went to court for a DUI, a judge would just order you to go to AA meetings or something like that. And um, again, uh, like you just mentioned, just forcing somebody to go to a support group that they don't want to go to without any other intervention. You know, again, it doesn't tend to be very effective. No, and we'll be right back after this commercial to talk. Um, some more with Annie. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. No matter what our age is, health deserves our utmost attention. But how do you achieve optimal wellness? Tune in to Ask Lorna Live. Your host, Lorna Vanderhaeg, will provide research-backed solutions that will have you feeling fit and fabulous. It all comes down to hormones. We'll show you how it works with mainstream medicine along with nutritional medicine. Listen for Ask Lorna Live every Wednesday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Health and wellness is about making lifestyle choices that make us feel good about ourselves. It's easier knowing what to do than it is doing it. Listen to The Tams Toward a Magnificent Self Health and Wellness Show with your host, Tammy Anastasia, M.A. Tammy will explore and uncover the answers to what gets in the way of our motivation. Through her expertise and occasional guest experts, Tammy will inspire and motivate you to make realistic lifestyle changes. Listen live every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Annie Ramis Ian Anu, which um, I'm making it sound more French than it probably I should. And <laughs> Annie is the Associate 
Executive Director of Clinical Programs at Spectrum Youth and Family Services in Burlington, Vermont. And we're talking about um, adolescent substance abuse. And before we went to um, break, we were talking a little bit about um, people coming in uh, to treatment when they're coerced and coming into treatment that's evidence-based. And um, can you say more about that, Annie? I would love to. Um, so, uh, as I've been mentioning in the previous segments, that is um, the entire uh, body of work we do at Spectrum is all evidence-based in all of our programs. It's, it's really part of our, our mission statement, as a matter of fact. But specifically for the counseling program, about five years ago, um, we participated in a NIATEX uh, process improvement uh, group that the state of Vermont funded, and we were lucky to be chosen as one of the participating agencies. And NIATEX um, is a quality improvement process in which you examine um, all of the intersections that a person has to pass through or connect through uh, when they engage in a treatment system. And it encourages you to look at all those intersections and evaluate how much time it takes to pass through them because they have found through their research that the fastest you engage somebody at every single one of these junctures and make the process more seamless and immediate to their request for service, even if it's coerced, the better the outcome. So we had been embarked on this uh, process improvement, and a district court judge heard about it, um, that we had no wait lists, that we had automatic entry, seamless entry, and no barriers to treatment, was very interested in really reducing what he saw as a revolving door in his courtroom, Um, certainly was exacerbated by the increase of uh, opiate-related crimes in, in, in the Burlington area. And we basically teamed up to try to examine how we could compress both the judicial system as well as the treatment system. Um, He really wanted to see whether or not there was some pre-trial condition of release that he could impose to help people move rapidly towards us. Um, His law clerk at the time uh, found that we had a Vermont statute um, that he felt allowed him the power to require a defendant to participate in an alcohol or drug program in order to assure the defendant's continued appearance at future court proceedings and also to reasonably assure protection of the public. So he used that statute to order people at arraignment to Spectrum Youth and Family Services for an assessment, again, evidence-based assessment, and ongoing treatment if that was what was clinically indicated, and also using ASAM uh, criteria, whether or not that was the appropriate level of care. So we have been doing this now for five years, and we recently had the program evaluated by an independent uh, group. Um, They are called the Vermont Center for Justice Research. We picked them because they have access to the Vermont Center, uh, which has all the uh, Department of Corrections data about people who are arrested and under the supervision of Corrections Department. And we asked whether or not uh, they could run an evaluation uh, introducing also a control group 
um, and to, to see whether or not what we were doing was making a difference. We certainly hoped it did because everything was evidence-based, but we really didn't have any idea about whether or not the, the recidivism had reduced and people were returning to hopefully productive lives. So the results of that of that um, evaluation were were eye popping, astounding. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Um, of the spectrum participants, only eighteen percent, eighteen point seven percent, recidivated over a three year period, as compared wow. to yeah, incredible. As compared to the non treatment group, <laughs> which was had a recidivism rate of eighty four point three percent. That is astonishing. Yes, I I couldn't believe it. And what was even more astonishing was that the recidivism, which which for those of you who don't know what that means, means obviously getting reconvicted. Um, if you did get reconvicted of a crime or charged again, that happened in the first year. Most of those charges were also found to be misdemeanors, so they were not um, violent crimes or or uh, larger crimes that you would think of. In addition, um, the we learned from that that this effect, the effect of the treatment, seemed to really stick because they just were not turning up anywhere else in the state. And again, that was not the case for um, the control group and the non-treatment group. And, and the, the people in the research participated in the METCBT5? Correct. Treatment? Yes. And they had 12 sessions or? Yes, and sometimes more. I mean, sometimes it would, you know, people, all of us need multiple exposures and multiple life experiences to continue to try new skills, to replace old ways of thinking and behaving with, with the ones that uh, hopefully will help them be healthier. So um, our, our treatment plans are obviously all individualized and really focused on role-playing and those real-life experiences. So uh, there was always close evaluation as to whether or not somebody, as I said earlier, needed a higher level of care. But otherwise, this is the foundational treatment that they received. Um, in addition, if there was significant mental health, as you mentioned earlier, Mary, certainly I would say 99% of the people who present for, to treatment for us are co-occurring. Um, we are all licensed clinical mental health counselors as well, um, and so we also help them address the reduction of any symptoms um, that are m- primarily mental health. So we basically then discharge them when, when they are uh, doing much better, and uh, again, the results are pretty astonishing. Were they on probation after discharge? There was no probation. And that was another fantastic um, cost-saving measure here. Since this is pre-trial, they are basically wards of the court, of the judge. There was no extra money involved in this process in the judicial system or correctional system, nor on the treatment side. Everybody Mm -hmm. used existing resources and restructured them in in this manner and in this alignment with no extra dollars. So wow, they that's... never entered the probation system. So there was no probation officer and no cost on that side. And, and I hate to say this, and all due respect to the many probation officers who I love in Vermont, um, you know, that simply is a system that becomes part of a very long process 
um, which is the opposite of NIATEC's principles, in which somebody finally goes to court, finally gets on probation, months and months later, maybe finally gets a treatment, you know, assessment appointment. And by that point, um, quite frankly, they probably already reoffended. So this really yeah. cuts all of that out and is an immediate response. And now we are trying to work with the state's attorneys and with the rest of the judiciary around the state to shorten up the time from the police action of the arrest to get them to appear in court more rapidly than they currently are so that we continue this compression across the, across the correctional uh, experience. So what's the best time from arrest to when they're intaked? What's, what's the fastest time that you see is possible? Well, I've been testifying about this um, almost every week since our um, legislature came back into session in January. And it was very interesting to learn that across the state, the state's attorneys, for some reason that was not really very clear to me when I appeared before the House Corrections Committee, um, that there's some administrative or really kind of institutional practice that they don't enter the data of the arrest into their database for at least four to six weeks post the police charge. And so I think that the legislature was kind of stunned by that and asked, why on earth does it take you that long? And there was just a lot of shrugging going on, um, saying, well, I think we there really isn't a reason, and or there used to be a reason, but we don't know what that is, and we can probably change it. Um, we're going to get back to you on that. So they were charged basically to look deeply into that and hopefully cut that in half. Um, and if that was the case, then the arrest from the arrest time to appearing in court, you know, could be less than a month. Which is, which is what you're aiming for. It's basically what we're aiming for or even, or even less. What we've also okay. talked about is what about from arrest, um, if, the, if, there, if we developed criteria of, this, of the crime, um, these were all drug and alcohol-related crimes, by the way, that were referred. So GUIs or clearly fencing stolen goods for drugs, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, what would it be like if the arresting officer had that discretion um, and, you know, was able to use some sort of, you know, stick, if you will, uh, with, with spectrum and a reduced sentence being the carrots um, to help them come along to us even faster and not necessarily have to go in front of a judge. So we're, we're looking at all of this to rethink everything um, and really go back to what you said when you opened the segment of not giving the public and people the, the false impression that treatment is related to <laughs> incarceration. Uh, treatment should happen in the community, and we should be readily providing it to all those who uh, start having behavioral problems. Unfortunately, it's usually the police and corrections who see that first. What percentage of the people that entered this program have a history of trauma? Oh, it was very high. It was very high. We uh, typically use the gain quick as one of our assessment um, protocols and also the chat and the ASI. And if uh, trauma um, is indicated, traumatic experiences are indicated on any of that, we also follow up with an evidence-based trauma tool called the PCL. And um, then we use, uh, an, again, an evidence-based protocol that was developed at Dartmouth um, to address their um, either acute um, trauma disorders or even PTSD. 
But again, I would say that there's a, a high level of trauma and a high level of witnessing violence and or being the victim of violence. Right, right, right. And we'll be right back after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. No matter what you have tried, healing is always possible. Learning about healing, what it is, and what it can do brings a much clearer understanding of the process. Listen for the Healing Power Hour with Suzanne Hill. Our program will help you understand your own body so that you can understand how you can reduce or eradicate any negative health issues that you might be dealing with. Healing is energy-based, and by learning how it works, you help yourself. Tune in to the Healing Power Hour, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Annie Remissienu, and she is the Associate Executive Director of Clinical Programs at Spectrum Youth and Family Services in Burlington, Vermont. And um, I think it would be really good because um, we know that addiction is a family disease, and and families are so important to to people getting better. And um, is there a family component to uh, what you do with this this, this evidence-based research? Absolutely, and I could not agree with you more strongly. Um, We do everything we possibly can to encourage and um, get families uh, into treatment um, with the identified young person, Um, and there is absolutely a family component to to everything that we do. Um, We typically use uh, evidence-based practices with the family as well, and I I also want to say that when we when we talk about the evidence based practices they are not um, when you when you execute an evidence based practice well as a therapist it you you the consumer will not even really know that that is what is happening um, it, it is possible to really introduce these topics and concepts in a very natural way and i just want to reassure listeners that it's not like we sit in front of you with a manual and didactically read or preach to you um, in some 
sort of arcane school type um, structure. Um, it is very, very natural what happens. Um, that being said, the models that we typically use were developed by a man named Robert Myers. Um, he's even been on Oprah talking about his, um, his model of care for parents. Um, it's called the CRAFT, and it basically helps families not only understand the progression of addiction as a disease and how to manage it within their family, but also how to create boundaries and what stance you take um, with your loved one who is suffering. Um, as a matter of fact, one of Robert Meyer's books that I, I love this title is called Stop Nagging, Pleading, and Fighting. Um, with your with your loved one, and uh, the subtitle is Get Your Loved One Sober. Um, it's a great book. If anybody wants to get it, I would highly recommend it. And he talks about the craft model in there, and um, one of the major, major premises is, again, about creating healthy boundaries and teaching parents how to use, well, to always to unconditionally love their child or their young person or their the loved one suffering with, with addiction and to realize that it is a disease and a behavior that they don't like, not the person. And to also use conditioning, positive and negative reinforcement, just like, quite frankly, you would with a dog, um, to encourage the behavior that you want to see. So an example of that would be um, withdrawing with love, not detaching with hatred, but with just withdrawing with love, communicating that to the person and saying, because you are high right now, um, it's difficult for me to be with you. And so, unfortunately, I'm going to go and, um, you know, do something else. Uh, when you're sober, uh, please come back and we can do something together. We'll approach. So you end up conditioning the sober behavior, reinforcing it with love and connectivity and distance yourself. Don't reject, but just wait. It's almost like a mindfulness approach where you're neutral with the, towards the person who has the drug problem, and you wait for when they make a better choice. So that's just one example of that kind of effective parent um, education and treatment model. You know, I think sometimes parents, um, you know, we don't get a kind of a manual when we have children. Mm-hmm. And I think for the most part, people do the best they know how to do based on the way they were parented and there's been so much misinformation for parents and and I just see how sometimes it's just so destructive what we've told parents to do tough love um, the whole detach I think you said it really well people do detach with hate because they're so angry and and Mm -hmm. resentful toward the behavior that they then begin to think it's the child that they're angry and resentful toward and and um, it's just nice to hear that there are other models that um, don't shame and blame or make the parents feel so inadequate or at fault. Absolutely. And I, 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 I see that too. And I always tell parents, it is normal. It is normal to feel that the, way, the way they feel. They have been through horrible situations, many of them. And you certainly wouldn't want to invalidate that. Um, it's an appropriate response to be frustrated all the way to, I've had families sit in my office crying, saying they, they absolutely hate their children. It's come to that. Um, the, the, the addiction is destroying their family bonds and, and the entire family. Um, so therapy is an appropriate place to express those emotions, not towards the child. 
So having that outlet to vent is so important and such a key part of support. And then trying to rein yourself in and behave sometimes in what is kind of an unnatural way, to be honest. So totally agree with you. You don't, a manual doesn't teach you this, nor does it come naturally. These are skills that you have to learn to respond to uh, an unnatural situation, the addiction that your family is happen- having. Um, so they're not, uh, they don't come instinctually. Um, but it is so important to do that detachment with love. And, and I think the other thing that's really important for parents to understand is that the most, I guess, the best preventative um, program is, you know, do what you say. You know, um, if, if you're going to come home and have four or five drinks every night or you're going to come home and smoke dope or shoot up and then tell your kids not to, that doesn't work. You know, what, what the parents do is a much more effective deterrent than peer pressure. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that there's I mean, this whole misconception that peer pressure drives everything. Well, it doesn't. It's the parents' behavior and expectations right. that really so could, drive what I the child is and I think, I think that, you know, along with detaching with love, it's everything you just said, which I would summarize this way. Don't ever forget that you're still the most important person in your child's life. Right. right. <laughs> and to just throw everything to the wind, say, well, they're going to do it anyway, so I can't stop them or, you know, I don't have any control over this. You have to fight to, to, to lead your family every step of the way, and that is really your best shot. And... And I, and I also know that many families have done that, and this is where it's also so important for models of care not to blame families as well, like you said earlier, Mary, uh, because bad things still happen to good people. And you right. could have been the best parent in the world and done everything right. And I've seen this so frequently. One child is a superstar and the other child has a terrible addiction problem. And they, and they constantly beat themselves up saying, how could this have happened? How did we make it with one and not make it with the other? You know, well, there was obviously some biological variant there that nobody really knew about. Every child is different. Every human being is different. But it's important to get past the blame and the shame of the parents and of the different siblings and, and everything and to, to start remaking um, a structure to respond to that addiction process. Um, and, again, these are just some primary suggestions, but I, I really want families to know that, that... Um, you can do everything right and still have something happen that's tragic. And there are places where you go to learn effective skills and how to treat the disease and not blame the person. And exactly. I think that's so and so that's, again, a large part of what we do at Spectrum, and I, I, I know that they do that at Westbridge as well. Um, and, and we work with parents often in, in family sessions without the identified child present because we need to shore up the families so that they can learn these skills, be vulnerable, struggle through it. There's a lot of role-playing involved, how to problem-solve when different situations come up. We want them to be prepared and resilient, not dependent on us, the therapists. And so once we feel like that is really in place, we're more likely then to have full family sessions with the child present, and we're there kind of as that coaches in the backdrop, but it's their work to do in the session, not ours. Um, we're there to possibly intervene or lead in a certain direction, um, but it is really up to the group um, to sort out the values of their family and what their responses are going to be to different difficult situations. Now, can you tell everybody the name of the book and the author again? 
Yes, it's Robert Myers, and it's Get Your Loved One Sober, Stop Pleading, Nagging, and Fighting. And how can people get a hold of you, Annie, if they have questions for you or they want to learn more about the MET-CBT5 approach? Um, You can find Spectrum Youth and Family Services, Burlington, Vermont, on the web. It's www.spectrumvt.org. But if you just Google Spectrum Family Services, Youth and Family Services, it'll come up. Thank you so much for a great hour, and um, it's been a pleasure to talk with you as always. You are welcome, Mary. Have a great week, everyone. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.